Most people are focused on inflation, and I just want to pause here for a minute and tell you the reason we are where we are with the cost of capital where it is, is due to inflation. So at the core of this, maybe a great takeaway for everyone, is go figure out what your view is on inflation. Because once you do, then you'll figure out when rates will settle, you'll get some consistency in both the short end of the curve and the long end of the curve. And if rates, or when rates moderate, real estate largely self-corrects, with the exception of office. So we need to think about that strategically if you're an investor or if you're an owner, and we need to think through what that really looks like, because the reason we are where we are is inflation. And I can assure you, because we speak with them regularly, the Fed is going to conquer inflation. The only debate is time. How long does it take? Hello and welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council. From deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. Today's show will be a replay of our November 9th Bank of Texas speaker series in which Mark Gibson of JLL Capital Markets Americas gave us an exclusive inside look at his 2024 capital markets projections. This was our final major educational program of the year and probably our best attended event of 2023 short of fight night. More than 700 guests joined us at the Omni Dallas Hotel to hear Mark's presentation and you are about to as well in a few moments. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with Mark, he is the CEO of JLL Capital Markets Americas, which is formerly HFF, and he's a longtime Trek member and former chairman. He leads nearly 2,000 capital markets professionals throughout the Americas region and is a member of JLL's Global Capital Markets Board, which is responsible for the firm's strategic direction, growth, and client activities. Unfortunately, we are not publishing video from this event or sharing slides from Mark's presentation. Before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to recognize and thank our speaker series sponsors, Bank of Texas, Stewart Title, Westwood Professional Services, Younger Partners, and the Dallas Morning News Medium Giant. I'll also remind you to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast network and follow Trek and Trek Community Investors on social media for the latest from around our organization. It's also membership renewal time, so make sure you're all squared away for 2024 before the holidays arrive. Trust me, they'll be here before you know it. To renew your membership or join Trek today, go to recouncil.com backslash join. Now, here's Mark Gibson's 2024 Capital Markets Update right here on TrackCast. Okay. Well, thank you, Linda, very much. It's such a privilege to be here. Thanks for everyone coming out uh, on a rainy day and uh, enduring what you have to do to get here. So we really appreciate that. Uh, my goal is to not bore anyone. So as in past, we're going to move through these slides very quickly and we're going to move at a, a fairly fast pace. Uh, so you probably won't have time to study what we're going to put up here, but we're going to go through some commentary up front and we're going to back it up with some visuals so we can really see what we're talking about here. Um, and I guess I'll start with this comment. 
that if anyone tells you they really know what's going to happen, you ought to run for the exits, because no one does, uh, least of all me. But we're a decent proxy. We're pricing about $200 billion of commercial real estate equity and debt a day. So we're, we're going to tell you what we're seeing. So that's not a bad, uh, at least from a credibility standpoint, a bad position uh, to take a look at the market and at least come up with some macro commentary that we're doing. So with that, let's jump into it. Um, the first few comments are meant to be a little controversial and provocative. They're absolutely true, but it's not what you hear every day uh, in participating in the real estate industry. So the first one is there's no lack of liquidity in commercial real estate. But the caveat is if you have to have it, you're not going to like it. So the cost of that capital is not going to be what you're used to. The structure of the capital is not going to be what you're used to. But it is absolutely available. And in fact, there is more dry powder to invest in commercial real estate than ever before in U.S. history. So that is just a factual statement. Number two is this higher for longer narrative has done something that we didn't expect uh, as fast as it's happening now. But it's occurred over the last 60 days where a lot of large owners and large investors were hanging on to hope for a moderation of the yield curve, rates to settle down a little bit, volatility to settle. And with the latest move in the 10-year bond, sans last week, but it's the volatile side of the bond market today, they've concluded that it's just time to trade. So just over the last two weeks, we're bringing $15 billion to market over a handful of transactions, so sizable trades, that are going to clear the market at market pricing because it's strategic. It's not maximizing necessarily price. It's rethinking where their capital is invested and trying to get back and reinvest on offense. So it's a vastly different construct this time than we saw in 08-09. Most people are focused on inflation, and I just want to pause here for a minute and tell you the reason we are where we are with the cost of capital where it is, is due to inflation. So at the core of this, maybe a great takeaway for everyone, is go figure out what your view is on inflation. Because once you do, then you'll figure out when rates will settle. You'll get some consistency in both the short end of the curve and the long end of the curve. And if rates or when rates moderate, real estate largely self-corrects with the exception of office. So we need to think about that strategically if you're an investor or if you're an owner. And we need to think through what that really looks like because the reason we are where we are is inflation. And I can assure you because we speak with them regularly the Fed is going to conquer inflation. The only debate is time. How long does it take? And when they do conquer inflation, what happens to the cost of capital? We're going to show you a few slides that will indicate some changes are likely to occur when that becomes obvious to the marketplace. Recession risk is where most investors are focusing today. Um, it's not what you read. Uh, in the press. And when you see a 4.5% GDP number, those of us that are actually on the ground uh, each and every day across occupiers and tenants, large corporations, uh, we don't know where it came from. 
because everyone is under duress and the only answer is it's lagging data. So when you just look at a few things like credit card delinquencies, retail sales pivoting to necessity-based only spending, um, car sales, both used car and new car sales, if any of you follow the multi-housing business and you saw the REIT announcements last week in their quarterly earnings, bad debts and skips are running at three to five times a normalized rate. So when you see these components come again, you have to look a little forward and go, geez, you know, maybe it's not going to be as robust in six months, and what does that mean for cost of capital and demand going forward? So if you're a large investor, you're balancing both of these competing issues. One is, is inflation really conquered? Because I'd feel pretty foolish if I invest today and the cost of capital continues to rise, and or I invest today in a rent I thought was there is not there. So that is what we're facing a little bit. Price rationalization and capitulation. Uh, again, I mentioned that capitulation is occurring much faster. And let me just pull that thread a little bit further. When we get these sale comps in the marketplace, that's going to reset values in our Odyssey funds and our core funds across the business. So it's going to unlock a lot of frozen capital at present because of structural uh, issues that exist in these funds. But most of the bond market here is looking at what happens in two years. And their view is, through a lot of math, that would bore everyone in this room, their view is the 10-year bond settles at three and a half to four. And if that is true, you can go to the next bullet point, number five. Historically, we're 150 to 200 basis points over that 10-year bond. You should really only watch the 10-year bond relative to where things settle uh, for your cap rate and spot market pricing in the marketplace. So we should think about that. And what do you think about inflation? And when do you think we may get to three and a half and four? And does this spread hold from a cap rate standpoint long term? But that is uh, a fairly consistent thematic that we're hearing from the best investors that we see in the fixed income space. Transactional volume is down 60%. Uh, most of you would know that because uh, people were waiting. They were waiting for, well, are we going to moderate? Uh, in the yield curve, and should I wait and hold and get a higher price? Should I sell and move on? The institutional investors are selling and moving on. Many of you are not, uh, but we have most definitely a bid-ask gap that we think is going to dramatically narrow in the next six months. So again, the capitulation is going to accelerate that trend. The buyer-seller profile is uh, what we have seen consistently in cycles. I've been through a few of these cycles. And this is a little bit of a groundhog day for me because it's, it's the same. Uh, so at present, 80% of the sellers are institutional and 80% of the buyers are private. And you have to step back and go, why is that, particularly on the private side? And again, I've already given you a little bit of the conundrum that large-scale investors, primarily sovereign wealth funds and state plans, which is where I spend most of my time, these days trying to wrestle, well, where are we in this inflation and recession and when are we going to see stabilization of the 10-year bond? The private buyer, particularly high net worth buyers, and when I mean high net worth, I'm not speaking of someone that puts $10 million or $20 million into an asset. I'm speaking of $250 to $500 million of equity per asset. So these act more like institutions. 
And they've closed the computers because the math doesn't work. And they're going, geez, you know what? There's no core capital because the Odyssey funds are frozen because their values at NAV are different than spot market. So if we go find great quality assets and we buy them at discounts to replacement cost, long term we win. And that is exactly what they're doing. And they're moving in massive scale. Uh, it would shock you. I have a couple of slides to show you what that scale looks like a little bit later. So they are moving. Having said that, if you have a project and you want to sell it, uh, and we've somewhat arbitrarily assigned $150 million to it. So if you're $150 million or less because of the private buy side, it trades pretty efficiently at today's marketplace. So what I mean by that is you'll have 10 to 20 bids, and they may be uh, quite different in terms of where they come in, but you're going to have quite a bit of activity at $150 million or less, and $150 million or more, you're not, because it gets harder, both from a debt and from an equity standpoint, to really trade something efficiently. So if you've got a large portfolio coming out, we're going to advise you not to do that and trade it a little differently, just given where the market is. We think that's going to change, because there's an enormous amount of dry powder on the sidelines, and once someone does it and they move pretty quickly, we're going to see FOMO, and we know FOMO exists and you'll have a lot of capital come back into the marketplace. So we think there's a limited time frame for this to occur, particularly with transactions above $150 million. On the supply side, let me just get a little participation here. If you're a merchant builder, raise your hand. Okay. So uh, we have a, a, a very large market share in raising equity for to-be-built product, and that's been primarily multi-housing and industrial. Our book is down 85% because return on cost metrics don't work. So the institutional market would tell you you need a 7 to get it going, and then once you say, fine, we'll do it at a 7, then they go, well, maybe I was just kidding, then I'll do it at seven and a quarter. And then you have to figure out where rents are going to be if you really think demand will be pulling back a little bit vis-a-vis -vis the recession commentary. So if you're a merchant builder and you are in the multi-housing business or you're in the industrial business, which have been by far the most in-favor asset classes for good reason over the last several years, your pipeline has gone down a minimum of 85%. And if we all pause here for a minute, we've said two things that I think are pretty critical. One is that there's no core capital, and if you buy great assets at a discount to replacement cost, it's a winning strategy. So that's an offensive statement on offense. And then no one debates we need more housing in the U.S., and we need more logistics because of onshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring, all the shoring acronyms that real estate's come up with. And no one debates those things. And the reality of it is we're not going to have any product in 25 and 26. So first movers, and we will show you some facts on this, win. But you have to find the capital willing to do it. And you have to find uh, some kind of return on cost metric that works. Now, interestingly, we have seen cost come in in the last 60 days 10%, with the exception of concrete. But all around, they've come in 10%. On timing, we spent a lot of time debating what I've just said. Uh, recession versus inflation, and when is the right time to deploy because there's so much capital out there, 
We think that's going to come to fruition next year. Denominator issues, many of you hear this, the denominator effect. So if you're a large state plan or a sovereign wealth fund and you have a bunch of different types of investments underpinned by a denominator of the equity market, the equity market falls, your allocation to commercial real estate goes up, particularly when the numerator, which is the price of commercial real estate, has not reset. So the faster we get trades to the marketplace, the faster we get transparency of where spot market valuation really is, it unleashes these funds. And that is a really, really good thing for everyone in the room. On the fundraising challenge, we have the largest amount of dry powder in U.S. history sitting in funds today, and it's not being deployed because of this debate on when to do it. So if you're a large state plan and you have a bunch of really talented folks like all of you are, come to them and go, geez, we think it's a great time to buy core, and we think it's a great time to build industrial and multi-housing. They go, well, that's great, but my existing managers aren't deploying what they already have, and I've got to reserve capital for them, so I can't fund you. So it's an interesting dynamic that we find ourselves in, but the last part of that commentary is maybe the most uh, significant. And it is the business models are changing radically. Uh, so I'm going to tell you a few things you're going to see over the next six months. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit in tongues. One is the, the large owners of capital are wanting to invest in owner-operators because they want proprietary deal flow. They're debating double promotes. And they want to make faster decisions with boots on the ground. The owner-operators, on the other hand, are looking at their business models, and we've been saying, geez, you can build and sell, but you're not going to create enterprise value. If you do that, you have to have a different financial structure to hold assets on book. And by the way, a lot of your competitors have already done this. So if we just take two firms here in Dallas, uh, and you look, well, three now. Uh, so if you look at Cadillac Fairview buying equity interest in Lincoln Residential, which has now been renamed Willow Bridge. You look at KDC, and then we just announced the sale of JPI to Sumitomo Forestry. So if you're competing with that, and this sources of capital have come in and said, we're going to provide you pursuit cost, pre-dev, and lead and takedown capital, with fast decision-making, that's a pretty interesting competitive advantage. So that is what is occurring, and there are, just in our book, approximately 100 of these that we're structuring now. So that is a really fairly significant shift. It's been happening for a while, but it has really accelerated for a host of reasons over the last three to four years, and now it's coming to a head in the market, and we're going to show you a few of these examples. On the debt front, I'm only going to hit three, three comments here. One is, on the transaction side, in the second sentence there, there's, there's a comment about credit spreads, and you wouldn't think this, but in the public markets, we've actually seen credit spreads come in a little bit. We're not seeing it yet. In the commercial real estate side, We'll see if that occurs over time, but that's an interesting uh, data point that we all ought to think about. The second one is duration. For the last 20 years, most everyone in this room, not everyone, but most everyone, the majority by far has used floating rate debt. 
and you've used floating rate debt because it made sense. They needed flexibility, and it was a lower cost of capital, and all of the reasons that we all know, and you went into derivative contracts if it was a construction loan mandated by your banks and various other things. Today, for the first time in 20 years, it's shifted. And so the demand has gone fixed rate. And it's a hedge. And the majority of owners are doing five-year terms, three years fixed, two years float, in order to give them flexibility. As a result, insurance companies are out of five-year money. But it's coming back. But that is interesting to see this duration shift and hedge against the higher for longer because, as I said at the very beginning, no one really knows. So we have to be a little more thoughtful about financial structure. The last point I'm going to make is at the very bottom, and it says increased loan activity. And this data, I put this together about two weeks ago, so it's a little dated here. Um, our loan sale book has gone from $1 billion roughly five weeks ago to $30 billion today. So unlike the GFC, where you had workouts and they had the A-B structures, the banks have all of that flexibility to do that. They were given that to them by the Fed. So they have all the tools they had in 08 and 09 to do it. But they're very well capitalized despite what you read. That's a general statement, but accurate. And they're going, I, d I don't want to go through workouts. Just sell the paper and let's go. So we announced two very large ones in the last 30 days. One is a sale of office loans in New York on behalf of Capital One to Fortress. We could only go to five folks. There were three bids at a billion, which surprised a lot of folks. And just as an illustration of FOMO, we got called probably 20 times going, why didn't we see it? And we said, well, we could only go to five. And I said, would you really have bought a billion dollars worth of office buildings in New York? And they go, absolutely. Which they wouldn't have, but it's just the FOMO. And we followed it back up with a $1.3 billion trade of notes from Synovus to Kane Anderson. And you're going to see this really escalate across the board. That, again, is going to reset marks in the marketplace, which we think is going to be good for the industry to go ahead and get this going because the capital is waiting for events to get stabilized. Um, so... My last general commentary, and then we'll run through the slide, the rest of them very quickly, is office. Uh, and a few of these trends and trend lines that you're hearing, and I wouldn't feel good about myself if, if I didn't just get it out today. So some of these, they're just not true. So we have to talk about it. So one is work from home rendering office investment non-institutional. It is not true. So every CEO shouldn't say every, the vast majority, 85 plus percent of CEOs were waiting for the tension between the employer and the employee to change, which it is now doing, because they saw labor productivity falling off a cliff. They saw training not working. They saw collaboration and team building not there. And most importantly, the creativity of new ideas and how to compete was not there. And they've been saying this for 18 months. Mark, you know, when, when this changes and the dynamic changes, it's back to work. Well, it is now back to work. I had Google and J.P. Morgan and Bloomberg in New York this past week. And they will tell you it's pre-pandemic mantra. Boston Properties announced what they were doing and their hard swipes. They're only in the gateway markets. 
particularly in New York, are back to pre-pandemic levels. So this is going to be a very different narrative in 12 months on the office front. And yet, it is an anathema to the institutional world. And for all of these reasons that we've put here, it could be the best buy-side opportunity that any of us have seen in quite some time, but you have to be very careful because it is very bifurcated by region and it's very bifurcated by asset, and we do have to be somewhat careful about it. But it is so out of favor, it's swung too far, and we're beginning to see large-scale capital, particularly some high net worth capital, come in in a very, very big way in virtually every major market in the U.S., Retail losing its institutional status because it's going to go away to online shopping is absolutely not true. It's been borne out. That should be self-evident to everyone here. And in fact, it has become a defensive asset play for a lot of institutional investors because if you got through pandemic and you got through the onslaught of online sales and various other issues that everyone thought of in the, in the market, primarily oversupply and others, your business model is pretty solid. The investors see it, and they're redeploying back into retail. And then finally, distressed transactions will be robust. Private equity talks its book a lot, and you're going to hear wall of debt maturities coming up. You're going to hear end of fund life. You're going to hear loan rebalancing, and you're going to have derivative contract expirations and all of that in terms of catalysts that are going to drive demand. And some of that is true. But what is not true because the Fed, again, has given the banks every tool they had in 08, 09. It's not going to be mass uh, distress across all asset classes. We think the only distress of scale will be in the office sector, and we're seeing it play out real time in the loan sale business. So with that, let me give you just a few uh, backups here from illustration standpoint and tell you what I've been, uh, or show you what I've been telling you and we'll have a few more comments as we go through it. So first, transactional volume is down 60%, roughly. And you can see where we've come from, so that's a fairly significant drop. Now, interestingly here, we talked about private buyers, or 80% of the buyers, institutions are largely absent. So you see here that 75% of the trades, which is the highest it's been in quite some time, are one-off trades. And that goes back to what we were talking about in terms of the private buyer in the marketplace versus portfolios. And yet, when you look at volumes across this page by product type, which again, you're not going to have time to study because I respect your time too much. If you need a copy of this and you're not a competitor <laughs> to me, send me a note and we'll get it to you. Um, but if you look across this, you do have some fairly large trades that also move the needle, despite the fact that the portfolio trades were less because you won't get the most efficient pricing. You're going to get the most efficient pricing selling down individualized assets below $150 million. But do note one thing, because it's, an, it's, it's, uh, it's a good note for the next slide, is that the volumes in office, roughly $100 billion, multi, $319, $279 billion, industrial, roughly $135 billion. You look at retail, uh, a little bit under $100 billion, and you look across the line there. And what is interesting to us is when we look at alternatives, which we have defined as data in life science and manufactured housing and MOB and all of the things that you hear about, which are the flavor du jour, depending upon where you live in the country, if you add all of those sectors up, they don't total $100 billion. So if you're a large-scale investor, and if there's, again, a takeaway that you, that you have out of this, I can't, I can't convey it well enough to tell you how much capital is there. 
to invest in hard assets. This doesn't really move the needle, but as a group, it does. So you're going to see formation of investment funds that wrap all of these alternatives into one construct and get it going. So that is an interesting change that we've seen in the business. The other one is mixed use. And everyone has, we've done a lot of work here, and we do a lot of mixed use, ground up and recapping of mixed use projects around the United States. When you look at this comparison, it's pretty stark. Uh, so from a rent standpoint, if you take a mixed use project, and you take an office building in that mixed use, or a multi in that mixed use, or hospitality in the mixed use, and you compare it to an identical quality office, multi-housing, hospitality, in that same submarket, just not part of the mixed use, rents are 20 to 30% lower outside the mixed use. And when you look at the absorption, it tells a story. So since the pandemic, we've positively absorbed 5.1 million feet in mixed use projects and from an office standpoint. And from a standalone office perspective, you can see the negative absorption. By the way, I should, probably should have stated in office that 60% of the vacancy is in the bottom 10% of the buildings, just to give you a sense of how far the narrative has gone to the negative. So it's, it's, it's interesting when we look at this together, and we've given you some ideas of what the best mixed-use nodes are in the U.S., but we have large state plans and sovereigns that have formed teams like they would a retail team or a multi-team or an industrial team, and they're going only after mixed-use because of this data here. We'll be right back with more from Mark Gibson's 2024 Capital Markets Projections. But first, let me remind you that applications for the Associate Leadership Council Class of 2024 are now available. Become the leader you've imagined with Trek's premier leadership development program, which has helped train emerging commercial real estate professionals here in Dallas for over 25 years. Class members participate in monthly educational programs about Dallas's business and civic communities, get personalized leadership training with an executive coaching firm, and complete an impactful real estate project in partnership with Trek Community Investors and the Dallas Catalyst Project. But that's not all. ALC graduates become part of an exclusive and extensive alumni community throughout DFW's commercial real estate industry. Alums often become vital contributors to Trek, our industry, and our city, with several founding their own companies or reaching the highest levels of their firms. The class of 2024, for instance, will be chaired by Winstead PC shareholder, chairman, and CEO Jeff Matthews. To be eligible for consideration into the ALC class of 2024, applicants must be active Trek members between the ages of 30 and 40. Candidates must submit a pre-application and full application, plus supplemental materials, by their corresponding deadlines. Pre-applications are due by end of day on Thursday, November 30th. For more information and to submit your pre-application, go to recouncil.com backslash ALC. That's recouncil.com backslash ALC. Now, let's get back to the show.
are we setting ourselves up for lack of capital because we're too concentrated in any one flavor? Are the REITs dominating? Are the institutional investors dominating? Are the high net worth, you know, what, what overseas investors? And the answer is no. We're not setting ourselves up. So if you look at the left side of this, the buy side, for Elijah and Blackstone are apparently at the highest GIC is there, which is great. That's the government of Singapore. But if you, if you look at, take those folks out, we're not looking at league table rankings here. We're just looking at the colors because the colors represent a different form of equity. And the more diversified that is, the better we are as an industry. And it's very diversified. So that's a great uh, sign that we see. We feel good about that in terms of our planning. Dry powder at record levels, this actually now, uh, in the last two weeks, we've come out and we have uh, the full data. It's now above $300 billion. So it is actually a U.S. record of dry powder sitting there going, I'm not sure what to do. And this is just closed-in funds. This is not open-end funds. This is not separate accounts. This is not high net worth. This is just this group of folks. Fund sizes are getting bigger. Uh, many of you may recall that uh, HFF, which you know, existed as a public company, merged with JLL, another public company, and one of the key drivers of that was, we're not very smart, but when enough people and clients tell you the same thing over and over, we get it. And the mantra was very similar to what we're seeing reflected here on this slide, which is, we want to do more with less people that do more for us in more places. And that vendor consolidation across all of our industries is incredibly real. And to invest from a technology standpoint and other investments that need to be made and maintain margins, uh, scale matters. And so we're going to see this play out further, and it'll be more of a barbell where you see those that have more information move faster, faster decision-making, can do more things for more people are going to win, and then you're going to have break-offs like we always do, and you're going to have the small end of the bucket, and the one in the middle is going to be somewhat problematic. So that change is happening across the board. And look at the scale here. So if you just look at Blackstone, um, and we've just given you sort of a top 10 look here across the board, but if you look at total raised at $52.6 billion, and you look at the drop between 52.6 and 6.2 at the bottom, that's a big, that's a big number. So that, that is happening across our industry. This is the open-end and closed-end fund increase. And just look at the growth. So if you ever debate whether hard assets are in favor or not, just go to the facts. Because the allocations are continuing to increase. Again, we're frozen a little bit. But there's plenty of dry powder. And the good news here is there's no naivety. I was at a, a, an event last night in Austin having a much smaller conversation with state plans and sovereign wealth funds. And someone asked me, well, what is different this time? And the difference this time to me is what well, was big. No one's been through a pandemic, work from home, unbelievable stimulus. I mean, I, I don't know. I've never been through that. Neither have most of you, any of you. So that's different, but the real difference is the naivety is non-existent because everyone's real and they understand cost of capital. They understand that you may debate on when it changes and what happens, but in terms of real demand and what it costs to finance our asset class, there's really no naivety. 
And the question is, what are we going to do about it strategically? And what I said last night was, I'm really tired about talking about today. What we really got to think about is in two years. So if you believe inflation is going to get conquered and you believe the Fed is going to do what they're going to do, what should you be doing today that you're not going to be disappointed in yourself looking back in two years going, geez, I should have been doing that. Because that's a little bit where we are. We're wrapped around an axle a little bit there. On the sovereign wealth fund, two points here. One is Japan Post is the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world at $2.6 trillion. They have 1.5% in commercial real estate. If you look nine from the bottom, you'll see CalPERS, which is the largest state plan in the United States, and they're 13% allocated to commercial real estate. Where do you think the longer runway is for commercial real estate? And if you look all the way down these sovereign wealth funds, they're massively larger than our U.S. plans, and they view the U.S. right now as their time to enter. So it's a little surprising to us. The data doesn't show it yet, but they're coming strongly from an operator standpoint and an investment standpoint into the U.S. because they believe we've now corrected and they see some of the things that we're talking about today. This is the first time it's happened in almost seven years where someone other than Canada was the largest overseas investor into the U.S. And it was Singapore, and it's through the government of Singapore, and they've been very active, primarily in the credit market, but also in the equity market uh, as well. And the issue has largely been this, which is hedging cost. So if you're buying at a five-and-a-half cap rate today or a six cap rate, and you have 2% of hedging cost, that's a problem because that's a 3% real number or a 4% real number. So that's an issue. But ironically, you have the UK, you have Australia, and Canada is pretty even on par with the US dollar. And the worst is the yen in Japan, and yet the largest flow of capital that we're all gonna see in the next 12 months are gonna be the Japanese. So it's a little interesting, but that's how strongly they're viewing uh, the US in a time to come back in. The last part we talked about, which is the high net worth capital, and you can see 11.9 trillion, so I really wasn't kidding about them acting as institutional investors, and uh, we have, we're so convinced of this that we started an entire division of just high net worth distribution services around the world. And they love hard assets because it's a great store of wealth, uh, and they can move faster. They don't have to go to committees like a lot of institutions there. From a public market standpoint, uh, we're competing in the private market with the public market, and the public markets have marked much faster. Historically, the private market is about half the public market volatility, so as it should be. But you're seeing better buys in the publics. So a lot of the capital that would normally have come here have gone into the publics as a tactical play, but they know long term that's not really where they want to be because the volatility is too much. So you'll see this change, and this is M&A activity, it's down primarily because of debt, but again, the business models are shifting pretty quickly, so we will see M&A activity really uh, increase. How many people have heard of Blackstone's B-REIT? Raise your hand. It's been in the news lately. This is them. It's Starwood, it's Invesco, it's Brookfield, it's KKR. It's all of these institutional investors looking at a dis different distribution channel to the retail investor, not necessarily the high net worth investor, but to the retail investor, think of a mutual fund. And they had a massive run in 2022 because fixed income was low, commercial yields were higher, and they came into the space. Now we're competing with 
treasuries. If you're an individual investor, you can go invest in six-month treasuries at 5.5% or 5.25% or 5%. Are you going to be in a REIT that hasn't marked its valuations all the way to market yet, or are you going to be somewhere else? So we've seen outflows that have happened in this space, and it's gotten a lot of press, uh, unfairly, in my view. This is going to be a massive channel going forward, both domestically as well as overseas, and the primary driver of this, it is... Uh, it is volatile in terms of competing with other asset classes, but the primary reason is retail investors like like me or you in the marketplace, a mutual fund investor, um, has less than 5% of their net worth in any hard asset. And so when you think about the run rate of exposure to hard assets over time, this is going to be a very, very valid distribution side of things. The debt markets are liquid. You're just not going to like it. So we have done construction loans in the last 30 days that are over $600 million per asset. One with a single bank, one with a syndicate of banks, SPAC. It's there. It's just different. Uh, it's harder, and the cost is different. The structure is different and very conservative. But we are seeing that across the U.S., and they're, they're moving in different ways, but it's just untrue that the banks aren't lending, and you can see it here. So when you see it, the, the left side of it, the agencies, the commercial banks, insurance companies, you see what they do, and you see where they're putting it, it's still very good to be in the multi-housing industry, even though we're going to face some headwinds over the next 18 months. But from a capital perspective, you have a dominant position in providers. And just like the equity market, we're not at risk of a dominant source of capital tanking the market as we were in 2007. So again, I always say this, but look back at 2007 when CMBS was over 50% of the market, when the public market seized, real estate really was in a problem position. And today we're not. So both on the equity, which is highly diversified on providers, and the debt, highly diversified on providers, it feels pretty darn good uh, to be in the real estate business. I mentioned that uh, people are thinking about a 35 to 4% long-term bond. And when we talk to the Fed or we talk to other folks, we're just trying to tell people we just need consistency so people can plan. Uh, and if you have a large company in the United States and you're trying to plan, it's really hard when the bond market, which is unusually volatile, is moving so fast, you're going, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. Um, they don't quite get that, but we need consistency of it. When we saw consistency in April of May of this year, the bond traded for 60 days between three and a quarter and three and a half percent. Our transactional volume went up 30 percent. And it's common sense because if you know what the cost of capital is, you feel emboldened to go make investments and go, geez, okay, we finally stabilized at some consistent rate, we're good to go. So almost no matter what it is, I mean, I'm, I'm saying that as a general statement, we just need a consistency that holds for more than 60 days. And when that happens, you're going to see a lot of capital feel empowered to deploy. And then I mentioned the duration of debt has changed, and this is the example of this. So the straight gold bar and the straight blue bar, the blue bar is fixed, the gold bar is floating, those are the three-year averages. And you can see where they're trading. So we've pivoted pretty dramatically to fixed as a hedge with an open 
from the floor. We talked about a five-year term there. Um, and we see who's providing it to the right. Okay, in terms of geographies, very quickly, we're just blessed to be in the state of Texas, and particularly in Dallas. But if you look at population growth on the bottom and employment growth on the top axis, you can see that the Texas cities are doing pretty darn well. So real estate's pretty simple. The investors know this, which is why you're seeing it change in their investment behavior. But people, uh, if you have people moving places, so population growth, and you have employment attracting them, or employment is coming there because of the people and the talent, real estate does really well. It's not that complex. We make it complex. Let's go find out where the people are going to be, and let's go bet on the regions where companies that we think are going to be growth industries are going to be over the next five years, and let's go make some bets. And that's exactly what they're doing, and they're looking at that metric. Um, from a... Sorry about that. From a long-term perspective, and this may be new to some of you, but this is not new. So the pandemic accelerated moves to lower-cost regions, lower cost of living across the board, high unemployment areas with certain components, quality of life reasons, et cetera. It's been going on for 100 years. So that's a massive shift in population and employment, but this is primarily population. So we talk a lot about that with investors. And then finally, you have this STEM component, which is really important. And it was primarily six markets in the United States, <clears throat> which are in blue. But now you'll all, you have all these emerging STEM talent hubs, of which Dallas is one of them. And that is attracting a lot of interest, both from a manufacturing standpoint, pretty much every industry SIC code is taking note of this and coming here. And all of this results in liquidity in a marketplace. So it's just shocking to me, because it's been happening for the last three years, that Dallas is the leading transactional market in the United States, meaning liquidity, which investors look at. If I make an investment, can I get out? Over New York and L.A. We're about a third of the inventory. So that's interesting. When we look at capital forming and where it's heading. On pricing, which is probably what I should have started with and ended with, but on the pricing front, look at the left uh, commentary, the left, if it's gray, yeah, the left gray bar. Um, and it says, even during the GFC, on a five-year basis, commercial real estate returns were positive. We never had a negative return through the GFC. If you're an institutional investor, this, this is meaningful. And, importantly, from a strategic standpoint, if you look at the next gray box, the people that made the most money were the first movers. But it took a lot of intestinal fortitude to make an investment in 2009, 10, 11 for all the reasons that we're dealing with right now. But here are the facts. So it's just hard with the behavior wrapped around because we can all go to imaginary horribles, and there's a bunch of, a, of them to consider. And I don't want to seem overly optimistic because we don't underestimate it, but this is a fact-based set in terms of what should you be doing now if you believe certain things uh, that are going to happen over the next two-year time frame. Supply is going to dramatically decline, which I mentioned before. So 2023 and 2024 are not going to be good years. 
for rents, particularly in the multi and the industrial space. We're going to see demand waning. I'm making a very general statement because of oversupply issues and a few other things that are happening, but then supply is off a cliff, and we're going to see what happens in 25-26. I mentioned that construction costs have come in. It generally follows repricing. It, it's not a perfect correlation, but it does. But they've come in 10% in the last 60 days. Primarily the subs are waking up for all you subs in the room, and your book has evaporated because return on cost metrics don't work and land is getting repriced. We get all that. And that in and of itself is a commentary on labor, availability, and other things that are going to be pretty evident over the next six months. In terms of where we ought to be thinking about future and how we get there, um, we've given you these views. So 2018 at the bottom, so just go to the very bottom. You have SOFR, five-year, and the 10-year bond. We've told you what they were in 2018, so pre-pandemic. These are our actual spreads uh, in the debt market with a leading debt intermediary in the U.S., so they're reasonably accurate. And then you look at to the far right, and that's your all-in cost as a consumer of debt. So that was 2018. 2021, that was your cost. We're calling that an anomaly. To March 15th through May, I told you the 10-year bond traded in a very narrow arrow. It averaged, or a range, it averaged 3.45. That would be your borrowing rate. And the question is, is that the steady state? And you would have to apply positive leverage cap rate to it. And then the current is where we are today, and is that where we're going to be in the higher for longer or not? So from an illustration standpoint, this is where we spend a lot of time with folks walking through these various things. And then I, how many people have seen this slide? Uh, just raise your hand. Oh, good. Well, okay. Um, so this is the Fed action. And it demonstrates a couple of things. So just on the left side, this is the average length of time they raise rates, 23 months. They're raising rates at the fastest pace in U.S. history over the last 12 months plus. Then on the right is how long they hold on average over that period of time, which is 9.3 months. And the question is, is this going to play out again? And it's really important for you to think about this and what would, what would happen here. But what is pretty evident in looking at the pattern, just the pattern, is that the Fed relies on backward-looking data, very smart people, they won't make a call until they see the data and it's evident. And so they have to generally overcorrect. So almost everyone would tell you that they should have been raising rates a year before they started. And they will likely be nine months late to realize the economy's not doing what it should do. And therefore, when you see it fall off a cliff, in past cycles, it's because they're trying to catch up. Don't know if it's going to hold, but it really changes your strategy over the next two years, depending on where you come out with this and, the, and other factors. Told you the average bond spread is roughly 150 to 200 BP over the 10-year bond. You can see the NACRE from where we were in third quarter, 51. That's an anomaly, but the average, generally speaking, is going to be 150 to 200 from an institutional standpoint. This is really important. Uh, two years ago, I spoke uh, in Dallas, and I said, this is concerning to me because 75% of total return, which is current cash on cash and appreciation, 
was in appreciation and we were using kind of silly rents to get there uh, and exit cap rates. And that generally doesn't end well, as it didn't end well in 07, and it didn't end well this time. And so we're now more in a balanced way to where 75-plus percent of current total or total return is going to be current cash on cash and less on the residual, which is healthy. Um, we talked about consistency of the 10-year bond. And so I mentioned that our transactional volume went up 30%. This illustrates it. So if you go back to... Uh, June, uh, May, and April. April, May is where we had the consistent bonds. People invested. Our transactional volumes went up significantly. These are weekly bids. And now you can see with the volatility over the last two months, it, failed, it dropping off. So again, just illustrative of what I've stated earlier and what we're seeing in the market. I know everyone knows this, but I have to say it. It's just math. But if your cap rate moves from four to five, um, your NOI growth has got to go up 25% to maintain par value. So we have to think about that, particularly with the financial structures we employ, and how good do we feel about that, and how good do we feel about the NOI over that period of time. And we're dealing with this real time uh, today. And then finally, uh, from a foreign standpoint, how is the U.S. faring? It's faring well. Uh, I've told you that the amount of inbound capital from overseas investors is massive. Uh, and it's going to be very evident over the next 12 months, <clears throat> as will be quite a bit of business model changes, as will be a lot of M&A activity, both in the private market and in the public market. And it's going to a lot be done by these overseas groups. And if you look at the U.S. Treasury uh, here at, ten, at the 10-year at 4.89, the U.K., France, Germany, Japan, it offsets a little bit of that hedging cost that we were chatting about earlier. And then finally, uh, the E component of ESG, and it's a little interesting from a definition standpoint, is very real. We're going to start seeing it come through regulatory mandates uh, in the U.S. Maybe not to the extent in Europe, but certainly we're going to see it. So one of the discussions that we're having is we do really need to think about this in terms of CapEx, uh, particularly on the E component of this over the next... Uh, many years. So the summary of this, and thank you for listening to it um, here, but we're in a intellectually interesting time. It's not fun for anyone. Um, we have promotes that are gone. We have banks that are under some duress in terms of how they lend to consumers and how do they decide which consumer to lend to, and a lot of that's coming down to return on investment. Uh, we're having spot market valuations that are not what we expected when we bought an asset or we built an asset, uh, et cetera. But the, the silver lining here, and we're going to work through this, but I think the silver lining here is I think the faster we get to realization of a steady state of cost of capital, the better. And if anything that uh, I've said today resonated, I hope it's that we're going to see a lot of transactional volume over the next six-month period that we think are going to reset valuations and unleash quite a bit more capital that understandably has been frozen on the sideline. And in the interim, until we see that happen or some other event that happened like last week where the Fed chairman came out and said, which is surprising, because they've said 2% inflation, 2% inflation, and privately they would probably tell you that 
they don't care about anything else except 2% inflation, which is alarming, but it's true. So they're going to conquer it. And he said, ah, you know, I think we can kind of grow and maintain low inflation. Well, the bond market reacted by rallying 50 basis points in five days. So we'll see how that plays out. But again, the consistency is it. And once we get spot market realization and we get an event where people go, okay, we're finally reached there. I think the silver lining is there are plenty of capital and hard assets are in favor. And in particularly, Dallas, Texas is in favor and the state as a whole. So thank you very much for your time and for coming out on such a rainy day. I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. Q&A for five minutes. Why don't, we have such a small group, it's very intimate, we can feel very comfortable asking your question. Trey, you obviously have a question. What is it? So the question was, overseas investment coming in the U.S., how did that overlay with geopolitical tension? Did I get that right? I don't know. Um, I watch what happens, not what is reported. So what is happening real time in investing is different than what you might think by reading the press. So, and, and what I'm talking about is regions that you may think might not invest in the U.S. are actually investing in the U.S., and these are not episodic events where they're going to do it for a year. These are long-term strategic plays, either in operating companies or other things like that. So I don't know how it plays out, and there could be discord. It's similar to the argument about inflation. So we see a lot of interesting things in the economy right now, but the, the opposite side of inflation being higher for longer and taking longer is the deglobalization of supply chain lines. And therefore, we can't deliver goods as efficiently to the U.S. as we once did because we can't move it around the globe at a point because we're going to be regionalized. And that's the other side of it. So it falls in the same camp. What we're seeing is different in terms of actual investment today. But we'll see how it plays out. It's a great question. I would like to say one thing. I want to give, how many bankers we got in the room? Sorry, I'm going to call you out. Raise your hand. Yeah. Okay. All right. You got to give them a little grace. So the business model, if you're running a bank, here's how you would think about it. And then we'll end on this one. The business model of a bank is if they commit $100 to invest in commercial real estate, which, by the way, let me just step back. The Fed thought commercial real estate was a systemic risk to the U.S. economy 18 months ago. We said it's absolutely nonsense. And the reason it's nonsense is 25% maybe of a bank's portfolio, there are always anomalies, 25% of a bank's book of loans is commercial real estate, of that 25%, maybe 25% is office. Of that 25% or 25%, half are owner-occupied. They've now come to the point where, okay, yeah, you're right, it's not a systemic risk. But the banks committed 100 bucks to lend to everybody 
and they count on at least a third of it being repaid every year. But it didn't happen. Nobody's got anywhere to go. So they're stuck, and they need to keep the allocation to be a well-run and well-managed bank. So their retained earnings are coming in. They're getting some payoffs. Things are changing a little bit. The public markets, they couldn't offset an A loan in the public market either. So if you were a bank owner, what would you do? Well, if it were me and them, if you lend a dollar in credit to someone, given that you're, you're constrained from an allocation standpoint, you're going to want more back than interest. And what I mean by that is you're going to want wealth management services, and you're going to want treasury services, and you're going to want depository relationships that are longer dated in order to stabilize uh, the deposit base and the funding base of a bank, and that's exactly what they're doing. But there is plenty of capital. It's just we have this interesting constraint. We may have to pull some folks together. We may have to syndicate it. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but just want to say it to the bankers in the room. Thank you, number one. It's not good for you all either, but there is, there is something there. And the bottom line is most of the banks that we see are very, very well capitalized. And, and I'll make that statement, and I'll end on this one, that with these billion-dollar trades that we have been doing in the loan sale business, we have advised these banks and various others to just sell the individual loans because you'll get better pricing. And they go, Mark, we get that. This is going to take too long, and we're tired of talking about it. We're well capitalized. Just rip the Band-Aid and pull it. They wouldn't be doing that if there was concern about an ongoing concern in the marketplace. So that should give everyone a little bit of comfort relative to the banking industry. We good now? Okay. Thanks, everyone. That's all for today's show. I'd like to thank Mark Gibson of JLL Capital Markets Americas for sharing his annual capital markets projections. Let's also again recognize and thank our speaker series sponsors, Bank of Texas, Stewart Title, Westwood Professional Services, Younger Partners, and the Dallas Morning News Medium Giant. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform and follow Trek and Trek Community Investors on social media. And don't forget to renew your membership for 2024 and submit your pre-application for the ALC Class of 2024 before the November 30th deadline. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.